Hey, my name is Jordan, one of the pastors here uh, at Renaissance. Uh, I grew up at a pretty old school church, and uh, the pastor every single Sunday would be rocking robes and uh, clergy collars. And growing up, when you're thinking about different professions that you would be, uh, I never thought in a million years pastor was one of them, mainly because I love sneakers too much, and I just didn't see the reconciliation of how I'd accomplish my life's vision in doing that. But from time to time, being a pastor now, even though I get to dress down at church, uh, I'll throw on a, a suit and a clergy collar, and it'll be all official. I, I do it for two occasions. One is happy, the other one is not. Uh, weddings and funerals. I've gotten the chance to do a couple of weddings of people here at Renaissance, and it's a pretty great honor uh, to, to, to do weddings and to throw on a clergy collar to make it all official. And it's always crazy to me the reaction that I get from people when I'm wearing a clergy collar. It ranges from respect to fear to everything uh, in between. A few years ago, we went to LA for a wedding, and I had my clergy collar on, and we did the obligatory stop of where you must stay, where you must go when you're in LA to In-N-Out to get a burger. And uh, it's not better than Shake Shack, if we're just gonna put that out there right now. <laughs> and I got to In-N-Out, and it was like the Red Sea split. As soon as I walked in, I was like, this is actually pretty amazing. This guy was like, Father, go right ahead. <laughs> I was like, well, actually, I'm not. You know what? Bless you, my son. I don't know if that's how you're supposed to do it or not, but that's the way I did it. Uh, it's really easy. It's really, really easy for people to see my work now as holy, as something that's godly, as something that is set apart and has a direct connection to God. But if I'm being honest, years ago when I was cutting my teeth doing traffic law uh, on Fordham Road or, or doing neglect cases in family court in the Bronx, uh, I didn't see um, an easy connection to how my faith actually connected to God at all. It's really easy for people to see what I do now as holy, but nobody would have said that about me 10, 12 years ago. Nobody would have at first glance just said, what you are doing is holy, what you are doing is godly, what you are doing is connected to God. I didn't really have a framework for how to understand uh, my faith and how my faith, more importantly, should impact my work. Now, Scripture paints a much different picture of the way that you and I understand your job, the thing that you spend 50 or 60 or 70 hours a week doing. Scripture paints a much different picture of how your faith should inform that than the way that our American society operates today. Our American society almost, to a certain degree, puts not-for-profit work or religious work in the category of good things, and everybody else is just trying to keep Sally Mae off your back. You know what I'm saying? You're trying to pay them loans down. One of the things that the church has done, one of the things that this church has done, is I don't think we've done a good job of, of talking to people about how their faith should impact their work. Now, here's how I understood God for the first number of years for my profession. Um, I understood God like this, that on Sunday morning, it's time to take him out. Here we go. Let's get, let's get our praises going. They're singing Reckless Love. That's my joint. We're about to get it in today. What you talking about today, Pastor? I'm with you, right? And then Sunday afternoon, when church was over and I was done talking to people in the lobby, I was like, all right, here you go. Back here you go. Wednesday night, community group. Let's bring him back out, guy. Come on. Come back out. But I had no way of understanding how faith could impact my Monday morning, 9 a.m., punching the clock at the office. 
Uh, what we're hoping to do in this Faith and Work series for the next seven weeks is give you guys today a framework for how we could understand our faith and our work and how you can understand uh, how important and vital it is to not relegate God to a space that's confined to a one-hour service uh, on a Sunday morning, but rather that this can permeate every single aspect of your life. It's interesting, if you were to look at the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that Jesus read, there were no words for spiritual. They didn't have an understanding that this was my spiritual life and this was my other life. Everything was just life. If you would have gone to an ancient Jew and said, hey, how's your spiritual life going on? They would say, look at you like you were crazy and wonder because they had no compartments or different breakdown for them. To them, everything was connected to God. If you were to read through the Old Testament laws, you see so many laws, not just about how you should pray, not just about what it looks like in the worship in the temple, but laws about loans and how loans had to be made, their financial industry, laws about the judicial system. They believed that God was a part of their entire lives, not just the time that they spent at temple. Now, to a certain degree, I think we've been under-equipped in, uh, in how to explore our faith and how it impacts our work. But if I'm being completely honest, I think the other reason we struggle to incorporate uh, our faith in our work is we don't want God messing around with what we got going on. If we were to let Jesus all the way out and let him rock out in our life, he's kind of, he's that unpredictable friend that you like, yo, I don't know what he's about to do <laughs> when he shows up. He's liable to do anything. And I think to a certain extent, uh, I, I was worried and if I'm being completely, completely honest, I still worry today, even being a pastor, of what it would be like if I really let Jesus have full control over every aspect of my life and my work. Here's a few things that are true about me that might be true about you. I would always prefer certainty over uncertainty. I like to know where we're going. I like to know that it's definitely going to happen. And the call of Jesus on our life to simply follow him, man, that doesn't come with any certainty. When Jesus would encounter people, he never went to people and said, hey, here's where we're going. We're going to make a left, and then we're going to spend two weeks here, then we're going to do this for a month, and then in six months, you're going to look like this. Jesus told everybody these same two terrifying words, follow me. But I would always prefer certainty over uncertainty. Not just that, but I would always also prefer being powerful over being vulnerable. I hate the feeling of having to rely on someone else. It's one thing to rely on people to do stuff that you theoretically could do on your own. It's another thing completely to be in a position where you need people to come through for you, even God, where you need God to come through for you, and if he doesn't come through, then you don't know what you're going to do. It's not a good feeling. I also prefer independence over dependence. It's interesting. Uh, every mark of maturity is kind of leaving um, dependence and moving towards independence. Uh, my oldest son now is three years old, and he's just moved to the stage where in the morning um, he gets up by himself, and he goes to the bathroom, and then he comes, and he uh, greets us in bed. Uh, it's a pretty terrifying feeling to feel a little hand on your arm, like, oh, what's this? <laughs> but we're working through that. Um, but in life, your, your maturation is a series of going from dependence to independence. First, you're dependent on your parents to do everything, and then slowly but surely, you become independent. I've heard it said that the goal of Christianity is to go from uh, dependence to independence back to dependence on Christ. That he would become the functional center of what we actually look to. 
Uh, I'm reading through the book of John right now, my personal devotions, and there's a scripture in John that's recorded that uh, if you stop and you pause and you think about all the implications of what it's saying, it's absolutely terrifying. Jesus, his disciples were following him. He just preached to a huge crowd of people. They come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we need to send all of these people home because there's not enough food for them. Jesus asked them, hey, what do we have? And in John 6 and 9, it said, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, um, <clears throat> but what are they for so many? Then Jesus tells him this next line that actually gives me anxiety. He says, great, have everybody sit down. Like, Jesus, I just told you that we have five pieces of bread, two pieces of fish, there's 5,000 people here, and now you want me to stop people from getting food and tell them to sit down because food is coming. Jesus is like, yes, that's what I want you to do. To follow Jesus is a life of uncertainty, of dependence, of being vulnerable, of relying on him. If we're going to have a faith that can meaningfully impact the way we work, we first need a version of faith that will let Jesus be Jesus and will remove us from the driver's seat of demanding certainty and independence and feeling powerful, because that's not the way that Jesus treated the people who would follow him. For the next seven weeks as we look at this, uh, I want you guys to challenge yourself to think about the, the Jesus that is uh, trying to invade every single area of your life, trying to bless and trying to multiply every single area of your life. When he first comes in, it might be a little scary, but it's always worth it. One of the other things that I notice when I read through the New Testament, or the Gospels in particular, is how tender Jesus is with people, and how Jesus is always calming people's fears. And more importantly, how the Gospel reassures us that if God gave us Jesus, then how much more do we need to know uh, than to see Jesus on the cross, that he has really good intentions for you. So as we're talking about Jesus, uh, I really want you, and, and how your faith can, be, can impact your work, Man, I want you to always have the image of Jesus that is not the one that is simply calling you to blind obedience, but we're, we're being called to follow the one who answered his call. Now, here's the problem, though, uh, especially for a lot of you guys who are new, and maybe the only reason you're here today is because this was on, a, on your way to Lido for brunch, and your friend tricked you into coming out here, or, uh, or maybe you're here and you genuinely don't know what you believe about God or the Bible and you're actually here hoping to feel something, hoping for some direction. Man, here's what I hope you don't get. Uh, I hope you don't have uh, a sanitized version of Jesus. Now, to be very clear, Jesus was the type of guy that everybody loved to be around. He was extremely approachable, probably more so than anyone in human history. Everyone would come to Jesus, kids, tax collectors, prostitutes, everybody in between. They would come to Jesus because Jesus had an uncanny ability to welcome people to him. And that's true. But Jesus didn't get crucified because he was a nice guy. There's a portion of scripture later on in the Gospel of John where it says that Pontius Pilate, who is uh, overseeing the, the legal proceeding over Jesus' crucifixion, goes to the crowd and says, hey guys, I have two people to release. One of them is this dude named Jesus, who's preaching these sermons and claiming to be the son of God. The other one is this dude named Barabbas, and Barabbas just caught a body. He killed somebody. The crowd in unison goes and is chanting, give us Barabbas. How offensive would Jesus have had to have been that they would prefer a known murderer to come into their community over Jesus? If you were on the board of a building and you had to determine who can come in, a guy whose sermons you don't like or a murderer, who would you choose? 
Being around dangerous people, I think we underestimate what that would feel like and what the crowd actually preferred. Uh, years ago, I did prison ministry, and when I first got there, uh, I underestimated uh, how much time um, it would take. And one, one day, I, I really, really had to use the restroom, and I went to the corrections officer, and I was like, excuse me, sir, I need to use the restroom. And he was like, oh, yeah, right there. And I was like, no, 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 I don't think you understand. That's the bathroom that everybody is using. <laughs> I need the bathroom where nobody can come behind me. That's the bathroom I need. And he was like, bro, just, man, I'm right here. Go in there. I ran in that bathroom so quick. Didn't wash my hands or anything. I just ran out. Later on, I would get to know those brothers inside and, and in a lot of ways felt pretty ashamed that I uh, thought of them in such low light. But here's what I, I, I do know to be true. It doesn't feel good being around dangerous people. It's, it's not something that fills you with confidence and it fills you, uh, that, that, you know, that you would prefer to be in the company of dangerous people, people who have done some pretty heinous things. What does it say about the life of Jesus that they preferred Barabbas over him? I don't know what you believe about Jesus. I don't know what you believe about scripture, but I don't want you to have a sanitized version of Jesus that uh, did not boldly make some astounding claims that he was not just a prophet, but that he was Lord and Lord of all. He was God who has come to this earth, and he demanded that anyone who would receive him, receive him not just as a savior, but also as Lord. Jesus doesn't fit into the crates that we would like to put him in. And if we're going to have a meaningful interaction with our faith and our work, we first need to let Jesus be Jesus in our life. And I don't want you guys rocking with a sanitized version uh, of him in that. Now, Jesus wants to change us. Jesus wants to change everything about you and everything about your job. But here's what uh, I want you guys to take away from today. Whatever you are doing all day long, whatever you're doing for 50 or 60 or 70 hours a week is not outside of what Jesus wants to do in your life, but it's at the very center of it. Now, all throughout scripture, there's this story that God created the world and God's good creation that he intended to do good things with, uh, that world fell, uh, also known as a fall of man. And later you see Christ coming to redeem God's people, and later the last act of the story is something called renewal, that God is interested not just in zapping you away, Luke Skywalker style, to a distant planet, you know, somewhere else, but that God is actively restoring this world. And to be a follower of Christ, to be a follower of God, means that you are working alongside of him to seek the renewal. God is writing a story. He's renewing all things, and he wants you and I to be a part of it. In Psalm 104.30, a couple of scriptures, it says, When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Not just people's spirits, not just people's hearts. God is renewing the face of the ground. God is renewing the material world that we live in. Now, Scripture also tells us in Psalm 24 and 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in, the, in it, the world and all who live in it. Or one version says, The earth and everything in it, the world and all of its inhabitants, they belong to the Lord. Everything, science, art, medicine, um, sports, everything, God is claiming absolute ownership of it all. And God is keenly interested in what he owns. Uh, during our paternity break, my paternity break, um, I was resolved to watch as many 80s and 90s movies as humanly possible. 
Uh, and it's interesting, whenever you watch a movie from like the 80s and 90s, you thought it was really good back in the day, and you watch it today and you're like, that movie was terrible. Um, one of the movies I watched was The Super with Joe Pesci, and this movie came out well after, uh, before most of you young lads were born. Um, and in the movie, Joe Pesci is essentially a slumlord, and it actually takes place in Harlem. And he's someone who owned a building and let his building go into really bad disrepair. And there was uh, vermin all over the place, uh, holes in the roof. It would rain. It would just like rain straight into the apartment. The plumbing was bad. And there were so many complaints against Joe Pesci's character that the judge ordered that he would have to spend six months living in his own building. Now, for the, that six months, he got to connect with some people, and, and the story uh, it unfolds in different ways. But I think what a lot of us think deep down inside is that even if God does own everything, he's kind of like a slumlord that doesn't care if it goes into disrepair. Like, he kind of just doesn't have any concerns with this world and how things are, are going, and we treat God like he's a slumlord. But God has a vested interest in renewing the world in every single sphere. Now, before we go any further, I want to be really clear about what I don't mean. I do not mean that what God wants to do is a Christian version of everything else. Like, so you have music, and then you have Christian music. You have art, and then you have Christian art. You have science, and you have Christian science. You have all these different things. God, uh, I once heard it, heard that, heard it said that a Christian is a great noun, but a terrible adjective. There is no such thing as Christian music. Um, a song cannot be filled with God's spirit. You can. There is no such thing as Christian art. A canvas cannot be preloaded with the spirit of the living God, but you can. God is calling us to get involved, not necessarily to separate and create our own thing, but right where you are, um, that is the very center of what Jesus is calling for you to get involved in. There's a theologian by the name of Abraham Kuyper, and he once says like this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There's not one inch. Your profession, your job is something that God is seeking to bring renewal through. Now, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about other topics. One of the ones that comes up so, so, so much is the issue of, well, how do I know that I'm doing the thing that God wants me to do? We will get to that. But before we get to that, um, in a couple of weeks, and I, and I don't want you guys hijacking a community group trying to uh, push ahead too far. Before we get to that, I want us to have a really good framework for understanding what is the way that I should be thinking about work. Three quick points. The first is that God created work. God created work. In the first page of Scripture, the first introduction that we get to this character who is God, the first activity that we see him doing is working. Genesis 1 and 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. Evening came, and then morning the first day. And then, later on, when you see God uh, create humans, what's the first thing that God tells humans to do? He says to be fruitful and multiply, and that's a, that's a different sermon series. The second thing that he tells them to do is to work. 
In Genesis 2 and 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. Before there was an enemy to tempt Adam and Eve, before there was a fall, before there was deception, at the very pillar of what God was asking Adam and Eve to do was to work. What psychologists are now discovering is that work is not something that you and I could take or leave, but it's actually very fundamental and central to our human instinct. More and more people who are approaching retirement age actually struggle with depression um, for a variety of reasons, but one of these central reasons being that they no longer have anything that they give their hands to. And the most important thing that you can have heading into retirement is a vision for your life, what you will be putting your hands to uh, beyond your job. Tim Keller says like this in his book, uh, every good endeavor. He says, work is so foundational to our makeup that it is one of the few things we can take in significant doses without harm. Indeed, the Bible does not say we should work one day and rest six, or that work and rest should be balanced evenly, but directs us to the opposite ratio. Leisure and pleasure are great goods, but we can only take so much of them. Second thing is how God uses our work. So God created work, and uh, you're, you working is not something that's a result of a punishment or judgment, but this is something that God intended for us from the very beginning of creation. And secondly, uh, I want to highlight how God uses work. Now, one of the biggest misconceptions about work is that in order for it to be good and godly, it needs to be in a religious space or it needs to be uh, in a not-for-profit or something like that. Um, but I think we need to first understand the dignity and the importance of work in general. When you first see God introduced in Scripture, you see him as a gardener. Later in the New Testament, you see Jesus doing what? He's a, he's a carpenter. I don't think it's an accident that, that, that divinity inhabited these seemingly meaningless professions. I think it's there to show us how God dwells and how God uses all of our work, not just the, the people standing on stage and preaching sermons, uh, but that God uses all of it. And we need to first understand that God um, blesses every single aspect of human work. Now, one of my friends said something to me a couple of years ago that ruined me, and I hope it ruins you. Uh, he said this, everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. Everybody wants to be a world changer. Everybody wants to be a part of something that's changing the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. Imagine being in a room full of people or a house full of people, visionaries, talking about all of the things that they're going to do, and then nobody's doing them dishes. How long is that house habitable? Not very long. There is meaning and significance to every single thing that we do, and I don't want you missing out on what God could do through your life and your job because it's not really significant. Uh, and to take it a step further, it's important that we know that God is not just uh, blessing our work, but he's also using it. Uh, there's a scripture, uh, a pretty famous one in Matthew 6, where Jesus teaches this really brilliant lesson. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. 
If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day uh, has enough trouble on its own. Now, this is a really famous passage of Scripture that talks uh, about the futility of worry. And inside of this passage of Scripture, Jesus makes some really bold promises. He promises to clothe you. He promises to feed you. How does Jesus accomplish that promise? Did you wake up this morning and did, was there manna raining on 125th Street where you just went and got a little bucket and you ate it? No. All throughout the Bible, uh, there's this concept called the doctrine of vocation, which means that God is behind all of our human efforts to provide for his people. When you and I will sit down at um, a, a restaurant, there are waiters and there are cooks and there are chefs and there behind them was food processing factories, and there are butchers and farmers and ranchers, and everyone in the economic food chain, everyone is all being used to answer this prayer that you and I pray, give us our daily bread. God is behind all of their efforts. A few weeks ago, we talked about a man named Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus uh, felt a deep need in his, in his life to meet Jesus. Zacchaeus, being a, a, a short man, runs up a, a tree, and while in the tree, Jesus notices him, calls him down, and changes his absolute life. I read a quote about Zacchaeus' life that, that really touched me. And it said, long before Zacchaeus could not see Jesus, there was already a tree planted to meet his need. Maybe it was 20 years before Zacchaeus ever even heard about Jesus. Maybe there was a farmer that was planting a seed and was making sure that birds didn't eat away at the seeds, and maybe he was watering it with no idea that in 20 years, Jesus would use this tree to monumentally bless someone's life. The doctrine of work means that you have no idea what God can do through you, how God can use your work to meet the needs of his people, and that God wants to use you, not in the flashy spaces, but in the everyday, ordinary rhythms of life where you can meet uh, the needs for God and God's people. The last thing we've seen that I want to highlight is um, the goal of our work. The goal of our work. What should you be trying to do tomorrow morning? When the alarm goes off, what should you set as your goal for the day? Uh, there's a scripture in 1 Peter 2 and 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This scripture right here, in and of itself, uh, we could spend hours and hours just talking about this very one and the, the things that scripture is telling you about who you are, not me, the pastor, not the people who are on staff, who you are, if you have placed your faith in Christ. It says, you are a chosen people. Nothing about your life is accidental. Nothing is unwanted by God. And it calls us another phrase as a royal priesthood, which means that you and I as believers, we serve as priests every single day. Now, what a priest would do is a priest would mediate and bring blessings from God to God's people. 
The goal of your work is that you are a priest. You're an accountant, great, you're also a priest. You're a vet, fantastic, you're also a priest. You're a teacher, even better, you're also a priest. You're a stay-at-home mom, fantastic, you're also a priest. In every single one of our uh, specific jobs, our goal is to uh, bless people from God, that we have an access to God, and that God has specifically designed for us to be in the spaces that we are in to bring his blessings to other people. Now, I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just this. I just work at Chipotle, or I just do this. How in the world could I do that? Uh, years ago, a story was told about um, Michael Jordan's, um, some sneakers that he had worn, and they were going on eBay. And for the simple fact that Michael Jordan wore them, they were going for a ridiculous amount of money. Not because of the leather and the rubber in and of themselves, but because they were connected to the second best basketball player in history behind LeBron James. You guys will get that later. Um, argue with me in the hallway if you want to. Now, if that's what happens to some sneakers just because Michael Jordan wore them, how much more are you valuable if the spirit of the living God lives inside of you? How much more value do you have wherever you are solely because of God's indwelling spirit inside of you? And you and I, no matter where you are in your day-to-day -day life, you're a priest. You bring blessings from God to God's people. You mediate between creator and creation. You have access to God, and you pass those blessings on to God's people. Uh, years ago, I, uh, we had some, a family member that was living with us. And uh, he had uh, been, he had had a couple of really rough months, and this guy single-handedly cured my savior complex, uh, because in living with me, he had been doing way worse than he had been doing at any other point in his life. And for a couple of months, month after month, he kept on getting arrested. Uh, those arrests led to him losing his job, and I honestly looked at him and saw him on a speeding train back to jail. After about the third or fourth arrest, um, I, I stepped in, I was representing him in, in, in court, and I, I called the DA's office. And if anybody uh, works, knows about the district attorney's office, you know that they have about 6,000 cases all to squeeze into like, you know, an eight-hour day of work. And the last thing that they want to do is spend a whole lot of time on each specific case. They want to, you know, get a plea and get out and get this thing over with to get to the rest of their docket. I called the DA, who was on his case, and I said, honestly, man, these three charges that you have against them, they have like amazing proof for, for each one. And, and I went to the DA, I said, hey, man, can I just, I know you got a lot of stuff on your plate, can I just tell you his story? Can I just tell you about his life and, and what he's been through and, and what a chance in his life right now could mean? What you could do to his life right now at this moment if you gave him some grace, and I know he doesn't deserve it, um, I know nothing in his rap sheet, which was longer than train smoke, su would suggest that you should give him this break. But if you could see it within yourself to just listen, let me tell you the story. And if you could just give him a break, it, would ch it, it might just change his life. That DA, who was probably, I'm sure, strapped for time, uh, spent some time with me on the phone. And we talked and we talked and we talked. And finally, at the end of it, this was not a legal negotiation where I was trying to uh, wiggle my way out of this uh, or wiggle my way out of the charges. The DA gave him a deal that was absolutely unbelievable. That single act by that DA changed the trajectory of his life. 
Now, he has, my, uh, my family member, he has heard me preach a hundred times, and I seriously doubt he remembers 1% of any sermon that I've ever preached, but I will tell you what he does remember and what he will always remember. That one DA who stepped in and gave him grace when he didn't deserve it, who saw who he was. What if in your job you saw people? What if in your job you didn't just go through the motions, but you saw yourself potentially as a vessel that God could use to bless his people, I think that might change everything about our work. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, your spirit that lives within us. I thank you that you know us and you notice us and you know everything about us. And God, you know that we are called to do good work that you have prepared in advance for us to do. So Lord, would you bless us? Would you show us that exactly where we need to be uh, serving more and more as priests, as your people, to bless others. And God, would you give us a boldness to follow you no matter where you take us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.